Welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we are discussing the Orthopedic Trauma Extremity Fracture CPG with Colonel Mark Pallas. Colonel Pallas is currently serving as the Orthopedic Surgery Consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General and is an expert in the field we are discussing today. To get started, would you mind explaining why this topic is so important to cover in a CPG? Well, I think it's very important for uh, fractures and fracture management uh, with the attendant open wounds that they often occur uh, occur in concert uh, with the fractures in a deployed environment, not just for orthopedic surgeons, but for general surgeons and primary care practitioners, uh, as well as advanced care practitioners to understand the importance of fractures and that they are very common uh, and that these things can be a cause if, if not managed appropriately. Uh, and then the patient has subsequent infection or has a vascular injury and it's not recognized, that can lead to a lifelong disability and impairment uh, for our, our service members. How common are extremity fractures in a combat setting? Uh, extremity uh, fractures in combat are extremely common. Uh, some studies have, have been done to look at the incidence of, of these injuries, and it's upwards of 78 to 80% of all combat wounds will involve the extremities. This is generally uh, in, in uh, as a result of the, the sheer uh, wounding power of the weapons that are employed against us, uh, the increasing use of body armor, helmets, and, and uh, eyewear by our soldiers that makes wounds that were previously not survivable, survivable. And so it also protects the torso and the head, but does not generally cover the extremities. And so these patients are, say, involved in IED blasts or uh, uh, large explosions and yet survive them, but have multiple uh, extremity injuries. And so uh, it's not simply gunshot wounds, it's a a whole uh, spectrum uh, from a gunshot to uh, fragmentary wounds to uh, explosive wounds. That's interesting. I didn't know that the survivability of all these things is what's leading to increased fracture wounds. Yes, and I think that that uh, you know goes to uh, the the amount of uh, research and the development of uh, protective equipment for our soldiers, and how uh, that has uh, vastly increased the survivability on our current battlefield. Absolutely. So, what are some of the challenges faced in an austere environment when treating extremity fractures? Well, in an austere environment, and and I will say that in the current uh, theaters of conflict, we don't have the same uh, level of uh, air evac capability that we had uh, in the early part of the uh, this this most recent conflict, uh, and we don't have large footprints of medical uh, facilities all around. So we have smaller teams of surgeons operating in much more austere environments, closer and closer to the the site of wounding, uh, and so that carries with it a whole host of logistical constraints. Uh, they're limited in how much equipment they have. They have uh, inability to get reliable supplies uh, in a timely fashion, and it limits the amount of casualties they can care for at a specific time. Additionally, they may not have uh, the full spectrum of instruments that we normally have. Uh, of course, most times they don't have any type of x-ray or fluoroscopy equipment in which to evaluate the fractures and to guide uh, management of the fractures. Uh, and then finally, the air evac nature of, you know, or the evacuation chain uh, can be limited by availability of aircraft, weather, uh, terrain, and then also the actual environment of uh, the combat situation. And so security concerns are also uh, very important, particularly in an austere environment. And so when treating fractures, we have to take all of that 
into account, treat the fracture and the wound, treat the patient, uh, but also do so with an eye toward those logistical constraints and you know what we can do for the patient at the at the point we're taking care of them with an eye toward follow-on care that will need to be provided to that patient along the evacuation chain back to the United States. You brought up the limitations of evacuation. Are more treatment options being employed closer to the point of injury? Uh, absolutely. Now, in my first few deployments, I was deployed with a unit where we had organic air with us. So we were uh, operating many times out of backpacks. So what would be considered a very austere environment, we'd set up in a just a regular building um, and we'd have our are what we needed to, to do acute care in our backpacks. And so for me, that meant um, I had a small drill that was not sterile with a, ba- with a battery, and I had sterilized pins um, and able to put in, in bone if I had to do a, an X-fix. Um, and then saline and some minor you know, instruments, scalpel, some retractors, uh, some uh, hemostats, things like that. Um, and so more and more of our surgeons are going with maybe just a little bit more of that equipment, but farther forward. And so they have to be able to immediately treat uh, a casualty, stabilize them, and then get them uh, evac back to a uh, the next echelon of care. So then as we're talking about the point of injury here, what are the first steps that need to be taken when treating a casualty with an extremity fracture? Well, generally, uh, we follow just like back home in trauma centers, we follow the ATLS guidelines. And the first, you know, that you go through your ABCs and make sure uh, the extremity wounds are often the distracting injuries. Everybody looks right at the extremity. Maybe they have lost a limb, and that's extremely important. But uh, that you should not lose sight of the patient's ability to breathe uh, and to uh, maintain their blood pressure, right? So you always want to maintain things like your airway, um, uh, your circulation, and so bleeding control is important. So once we have established the, the entirety of the patient's uh, injury and begin to stabilize them, uh, from a medical standpoint, then we can turn our attention to the extremity fracture. Uh, and so in many cases, in, a, in an austere environment, uh, you're not going to be able to do a full wound debridement, um, but it's important if there's an open wound to at least you know irrigate it with saline. Uh, and then if there's a fracture associated with it, either splint it or fix it ex- externally uh, to allow for stability of the fracture for uh, further transport. Can you speak a little bit more about the options for stabilizing extremity fractures? Well, in many cases, you know, splints should be used as, I would say, as liberally as possible uh, with an eye toward not causing any further injury to the patient. And so things like SAM splints and foldable splints are ubiquitous. Uh, medics carry these in their aid packs, and, and generally uh, the, the four surgical teams have them available to them. Uh, some other uh, teams that a little bit further along the echelon may have plaster or have some fiberglass. And so when possible, particularly in the upper extremity, uh, we try to splint just about everything because you can splint a humerus or an elbow or a wrist and then uh, use a swath to basically stabilize it against the patient so that you can then move them without fear of uh, you know, moving the fracture or causing further injury. Lower extremity injuries, ankle injuries, uh, tibia fractures, those can be splinted. Um, provided that you check pulses one before. That's one of the important things that you assess when you assess an injury is if that involves a fracture to make sure they have a, a good pulse uh, to the uh, distal part of the extremity. And then once you splint the fracture, you need to double check and recheck that the, the uh, vascularity is maintained and they, they have a pulse. And so in, in many cases with, with lower you know, leg and ankle injuries, uh, upper extremity injuries, those can be splinted. Uh, typically, femur fractures, uh, fractures of involving the knee or about the knee, 
um, if th there's an ability to externally fix those, particularly if there's going to be a long evac, that is going to provide stability to the, to the fracture, help stabilize the patient, reduce pain, uh, and reduce further injury uh, along the course of their evacuation. And so one other caveat that I would say is if there is an associated vascular injury, it's important for uh, the orthopedic surgeons and the general surgeons caring for the patient to uh, discuss the order of treatment. Uh, the vascular injury generally takes precedence, but uh, in many cases in very austere environments or at the forward surgical teams, many of the, that will involve a shunt. And so we'll put an external fixer to stabilize, uh, span the knee, for example, in the case of a popliteal artery injury, so that artery can be split or uh, shunted, and then that patient can be transported uh, without fear of displacing that shunt because the fracture is unstable. When a casualty presents with a fracture amongst other injuries, where should fracture treatment fall in the order of care? Well, the vascular status is, is obviously the most critical piece. Um, in some cases, you can check the neurostatus as well, but a lot of times the patients are unconscious or intubated, so you're not going to have that opportunity. But as long as you know that that the patient has a pulse to their extremity, um, then we can worry about the, the neurostatus uh, later at a, a higher echelon. Uh, the open wounds is important, right? So if there's an open wounds, open fractures or wounds about fractures or on the extremity, as I said, those should be uh, washed out uh, as best as possible. If, if they can be debrided, uh, depending on which location you're at, if you're a little farther along, say at a forward surgical team, uh, there, you can do a debridement in which you remove any foreign material uh, any dead or devitalized skin or soft tissue, and then any bone fragments that do not have a soft tissue attachment uh, should be removed. With the exception of large articular fragments, joint fragments that have cartilage, those should be left um, because that's going to be important to for the reconstruction uh, purposes later. Um, in addition to washing out or doing an initial debridement of the fracture, it's also important that the patient be given uh, antibiotics Generally, we use a first-generation cephalosporin and then also tetanus toxoid. And so those should be administered as early as possible. Our trauma literature uh, supports early administration of, of antibiotics, and often that is the most important uh, thing versus uh, earlier or uh, later debridement and fracture fixation. It's the, the, the early administration of antibiotics in open, open fractures. Once you then do that and either external fix the uh, fracture or splint, Somewhere on the bandage or the splint should be written the date and time of the last debridement. And I would add, the CBG doesn't add this, but we routinely did this, particularly if you're the first person taking care of the patient, a, a quick description of the fracture and whether or not they got antibiotics and tetanus. Um, because the, what we have found is that from very far forward, and particularly in austere environments, there's not a, a really clear medical record that follows the patient until they get to a more established medical facility. And this prevents that information from being lost in transit because it's on the patient and the, the next care provider can look at that bandage and say, okay, they, are, they did a treatment yesterday at two o'clock. Is marking the splint with casualty information a new addition to the CPG or has this been a standard recommendation for some time? I, you know, I, I think this is sort of uh, new in the, the CPG, but I know it was it was a standard practice from even back from my first deployment in 2004. So I think this is a, at least for orthopedic surgeons. This is generally um, how we how we practice, and uh, since 2004 2005 timeframe in our combat extremity surgeons course, uh, we do teach that as well. The CPG has a lot of information on external fixation. 
What makes external fixation preferable over internal fixation in an austere environment? Well, internal fixation of fractures obviously is the best, in many cases, the final treatment for it. In an austere environment or in a deployed environment, it's generally not recommended for a couple of reasons. One is just the, the sheer volume of uh, equipment that's needed to do this, right? So you need to have multiple size plates, many different size screws. Um, and so you worry about the sterility of both the logistical constraints of getting that in, that equipment, but also the sterility of said equipment and the ability to sterilize it particularly at, a, like, say, a forward surgical team, which has a very small sterilizing unit. Um, secondly, there is an increased risk of infection uh, with internal fixation. So um, we generally use external fixation as a provisional stabilization. Additionally, um, the external fixation limits further damage or soft tissue injury, stabilizes the fracture to prevent further injury, and then allows for later on uh, uh, definitive care uh, provided at the higher echelon. So what resources are typically available in the austere environment for external fixation of fractures? Well, the striker has made a, what's called a Hoffman II uh, uh, pack, which is generally has uh, four pins, two uh, pin-to-bar clamps, and uh, or two pin clamps, I'm sorry, four pin-to-bar clamps, and uh, two rods. And so uh, that's the, the basic pack that we have available to us. And then at the larger caches, and sometimes at the FSTs, there's a larger tub that has a lot more uh, larger size uh, pin clamps, uh, multiple size and lengths of rods, et cetera. And so, you know, I used to carry at least three of those small sets um, uh, with me. And I, I, I suspect the uh, ghost teams are doing that as well now, uh, going far forward and having at least one or two external fixer sets available. And and you can mix and, and match the rods if you needed to span a knee, for example. You can use three or four different, you know, rods uh, to help you stabilize the knee uh, for a, uh, say, an intraarticular fracture. So, what are some of the considerations that need to be taken when ensuring frame stability on an external fixation? There are several things that will contribute to the stability of your frame. Uh, principle among those is uh, optimizing the reduction of the fracture. So. In many cases, particularly in the austere environment, you're not going to have x-rays. You're not going to be able to absolutely get it anatomic. But the the idea is to get as good a reduction as you can um, within the the limits of of what you have available to you. Secondly, minimizing the bone-to-bar distance. So the distance from the bone to the actual um, carbon fiber bar that we use uh, will help increase the frame stability. Uh, With an eye toward, though, you have to leave some space uh, to allow for swelling of soft tissues, as well as for any bandaging that you may use. Um, additionally, maximizing the space between the pins, the two pins in the proximal uh, fragment and in the or the, the proximal segment, and two or more pins in the distal segment. You want to maximize the space between those pins, taking care not to enter the fracture site, because if your pin goes into the fracture site, then that limits the stability or, or decreases the stability of the fracture. And then uh, finally, using the largest diameter pin possible because the bending strength of that pin is proportional to the radius uh, to the fourth power. And so we do typically, uh, we do recommend using the minimum number of pins possible. The Hoffman II set comes with four pins. So you can place two pins in the proximal segment, say of the tibia, and two pins in the distal segment and place your two bars across the lower extremity. Um, We also recommend not uh, or caution against putting a pin 
within a centimeter of the uh, tibial plafond in the tibia. So because the concern that that will be uh, potentially be intraarticular uh, and therefore uh, risk uh, in, in, uh, infection. When dealing with an extremity fracture, how do you make the choice between using a splint or an external fixator? Yeah, sure. Well, that's going to depend on, you know, what you have available, right? It's going to depend on uh, the mission set. It's going to depend on how much time you have. Uh, and then finally, the, the type of fracture and the location of the fracture. So if I am in an austere environment, but I do have some splinting materials, but also an external fixator, I would consider in the upper extremity, almost universally applying a splint. Um, most upper extremity fractures can be stabilized with a uh, either a sugar tong or what we call a double sugar tong splint and a coaptation, meaning stabilizing that arm against the patient's abdomen and applying a wrap to stabilize it there. Uh, and so I would say in most cases, I would just, I would err on the side of uh, splinting upper extremity fractures. Lower extremity fractures, now if it's around the foot, the ankle, uh, the, the tibia, those can be splinted uh, provided the patient has intact vascularity. You can also, if you're going to be able to evac a patient quickly to the next echelon of care, you could potentially uh, splint um, a, a fracture about the knee. However, in many cases, femur fractures or uh, complex uh, intraarticular fractures of the knee uh, are better served with a, an external fixator uh, because that gives you good initial stability, uh, allows for safe uh, transport and movement of the patient, uh, and allows for protection of the, of the wound, but also access to the wound uh, for further debridement uh, later. In one case of where you would almost absolutely uh, utilize an external fixer would be uh, in a vessel injury, say, in, around the knee, in a popliteal artery, for example. You would uh, talk very carefully, as we said before, uh, with the general surgeons and uh, place your external fixer to stabilize uh, that, the knee or the fracture to allow stability for that shunt uh, or your vessel repair or graft uh, so that it doesn't become uh, dislodged during transport. What are some of the key differences between treating an upper extremity fracture and a lower extremity fracture? Well, um, some of the differences are that the upper extremity, again, is more easily uh, splinted. Um, it's generally less forgiving with regard to nerve injury. Um, there's it's a, it's a smaller extremity, has more nerves in proximity to the, the bony structures. And so uh, external fixator uh, placement in the upper extremity is, is more, you have to be more careful if you're going to use an upper, uh, upper extremity external fixator. Uh, with regard to the lower extremity, um, it's a larger extremity. You can have larger volumes of blood loss, say, within the compartment of the thigh. Uh, and you can develop typically compartment syndrome in the tibia uh, is, is relatively common. And so uh, while you can splint uh, fractures of the lower extremity, the external fixers often, particularly in concert with complex fractures or open wounds, may be best served with early stabilization to prevent uh, further blood loss or further injury. And uh, for example, the tibia, uh, you know, the subcutaneous you know, border of the tibia is easily palpable. And so you can very, uh, very easily and quickly uh, place your pins in a safe manner versus the humerus, uh, where you have to, we recommend that you make incisions and then dissect down and prevent, uh, make sure you're not uh, gonna wrap up a, a radial nerve, for example, in your external fixator pin. So there are really quite a few factors to be considered during treatment. There's the type of fixation being used, the particular extremity that is being treated. Each casualty is a unique case. That is correct. And like I said, you have to consider in some cases where you might be able to splint a lower extremity injury, if you know you're going to have a long, it's going to be a, a ground evac that's going to take a long time, 
then it might be worth putting on an external fixer to stabilize that fracture so you know you have stability um, during that, that evacuation process. Vice versa, if you know a helicopter is inbound, ready to pick up the patient, uh, you may not take the time to put an external fixer on. You might just splint the lower extremity um, and get them on the aircraft to the next echelon of care. Thanks for your time today. We appreciate you taking this time to share your expertise and experience with all of us. I, I thank you for the opportunity to do this. Um, I think these uh, these CPGs are extremely helpful, um, and I think this is going to continue to uh, help us maintain both the quality and the volume of care that we have uh, done heretofore and contribute uh, very much toward the continuing the survivability of our, our service members downrange. This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or checking back on the website. You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.